Today's scripture comes from Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 to 17. And this is the word of the Lord. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled in the, into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagles, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, and times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like the, a river out of his mouth after the woman, to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the, to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth, and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Mike. Good morning, everybody. <coughs> Uh, I asked Mike to read the scripture because um, I think I have like a stomach bug or something, so I just feel a little, uh, little weak. Um, but I am excited to preach this text, and uh, this is a text that I've wanted to preach for a long time. So, um, you know, here's what I trust: you know, more than mind over body, it's uh, spirit over flesh. And I think uh, as we get into it, uh, I think the Lord will uh, give me some adrenaline, and uh, maybe I'll get a little more strength, but um <coughs> uh, even not, word comes by his spirit. So let's let's pray and uh let's ask the the Lord to um to reveal himself today through his word. Let's pray. God we thank you just for this time. 
and we thank you that uh, just what a great privilege it is to gather together and to, uh, to sing of your great name with the spiritual family that you graciously provide. And together we want to sit under the, um, the authority of your word, but also um, we want to uh, experience the goodness of your word uh, because your truth and your goodness and especially what you say about Jesus Christ is something that's so rich and so uh, beautiful. And just as we said in the beginning, of our worship that we would gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Uh, that's what we want to do through your word. So help us to see the beauty of uh, the Lamb of God as we hear your word today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, we're in a series uh, on fear, and I made a last-minute change. Uh, I wasn't really originally going to preach on this passage, but I, I thought, I was thinking about it, and I thought it was very important to give a message about spiritual warfare, especially as it relates to this topic of fear, because you know, we, li we live in the West, and especially in New York, New York tends to be um, much more secular. And so when we talk about fear, it's easy to talk about fear in the context of certain categories. So we understand fear as something that's uh, biological or something that's psychological or something that's sociological. So when we think about our own fears and anxieties, uh, we say, you know, it's something that's caused by maybe a chemical imbalance in the brain. Maybe it's caused by childhood wounds. Uh, maybe it's caused by helicopter parenting. And, uh, of course, that's a biological, psychological, sociological perspectives. And, therefore, I think maybe our solutions to fear and anxiety um, are going to reflect how we ultimately look at the problem and diagnose the problem. So the ultimate solution may be medication or cognitive behavior therapy or maybe changing our parenting methods. And, you know, as a Christian and as a pastor, uh, I... I wouldn't say those things are, are bad things, and I wouldn't argue with those things, because certainly I see the usefulness of some of these things. But my contention is basically this. It doesn't tell the entire story. That's just one aspect of the story of fear. Now, according to the Bible, there is a spiritual realm, and what happens in the spiritual realm actually has an impact on what happens to us on earth. And this is something probably common sense in other cultures in places like Asia and Africa and maybe other places in the world, but... Uh, again, we, we live in the West and uh, in a culture that tends to be a little bit more secular, so uh, it's very easy to dismiss maybe spiritual explanations of evil. But if you read the Bible, a lot of things are not explained through uh, these other categories that we use, but a lot of things are actually explained through a spiritual lens. So let me give you an example. Uh, you know when the kingdom of Israel divides and when this foreign empire comes in and overtakes Israel and they are ultimately exiled from their land? You know what the Bible's explanation is for why that happened? It's not because Israel had weaker armies or poor military strategy or other nations had greater economic prosperity or any of those kinds of things. The Bible's explanation is ultimately this, which you find in 2 Kings 17. It says, and this occurred, meaning the fall of Israel, this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. Now, we would never interpret the world's events through that kind of spiritual lens, but uh, it should give us pause to think that maybe we should, because when the Bible looks at at least Israel's history, that's how the Bible sees it, through a spiritual lens. Now, that's one of the reasons, I think, why the book of Revelation is so important, and I know it's not a book that you hear preached from often, and a lot of people, if I were to guess, probably avoid reading the book of Revelation because it's like, oh, this book is too hard or this book maybe is a little bit too scary or any of those kinds of things. But 
Um, the book of Revelation is actually a very important book and something that we shouldn't shy away with. Especially, uh, in fact, in chapter 1, it says it's something that we are to be blessed by. But it is a challenge to understand. You know, if I were to compare different books of the Bible to different movie genres, I would say maybe Exodus is like an Avengers movie. Uh, Samuel King's and Chronicles is probably like Game of Thrones. And the Gospels are maybe some kind of biographical picture like Lincoln or Malcolm X. The book of Revelation, it would be more like that artsy, independent film that maybe not everybody <laughs> gets. Um, it's filled with a lot of visual illusions, a lot of images, a lot of pictures, which are, of course, drawn from the Old Testament. But they are meant to communicate a overarching theme or message, a theological message to the people of God. I thought about this a few years ago. What if we uh, had a Christian faith that was constructed without really taking into account what the book of Revelation says? And uh, my guess is we would probably end up with a Christianity that loses its emphasis on the cosmic and spiritual dimension uh, that is so uh, powerfully revealed in this apocalyptic book. A lot of people think the book of Revelation is uh, about the future, right? Revelation gets a rap for certain things that aren't necessarily true. Yeah, it's partially about the future uh, and the end of history, but it's not entirely about the future and the end of history. Part of it is it's meant to give us an interpretation of why certain things are happening to the present-day church. So, for example, some of the churches at the time in Asia Minor, they were being persecuted. Why? Well, political explanation might be the governments felt threatened by Christians because they wouldn't bow down and worship the emperor. Uh, but a political definition is not ultimately sufficient and not the explanation that the book of Revelation gives us because it lacks that spiritual dimension. The spiritual dimension is this. Satan is angry. He wants to destroy the church, and one of the things that he does is he brings persecution upon the church. We could say the same thing about you know, present-day churches and believers as well in other parts of the world, like China. Why is the Chinese government kicking out all these Christian missionaries and shutting down churches? Well, we could say the same thing. Well, politically, they feel threatened. They're afraid of the rising Christian movement and what it might do to the government. And that's one layer of understanding what is going on. But there is ultimately a deeper spiritual layer in terms of what Satan is doing to attack the Christian church. Now, this I see is one of the benefits of a book like Revelation. Uh, John, who is the... I guess, receiver of all the visions, and then he, he records these visions. Uh, he, his visions tell us what is going on on a cosmic spiritual level. And the central characters here, at least in this passage, but even throughout the book of Revelation, the central characters here are Satan, the church, and Jesus. So we're going to look at this chapter and basically just look at those three characters and see what this passage says about those three characters, Satan, the church, and Jesus. So first, let's look at Satan. Uh, I, don't I don't know that we are necessarily tempted to downplay the active work of Satan. I actually think in our church we have a pretty good balance uh, in terms of balancing the, the spiritual dimension. But uh, still, we may not emphasize it enough. I think it makes people, certain people, uncomfortable, and I think for some very legitimate reasons, because uh, this kind of theology maybe has been abused. Maybe people have blamed the devil for their own sin and things that they should be held responsible for, and they say, the devil made me do it. The devil made me lie, cheat, and steal. It wasn't me. And I think it's right to call people out for that uh, because they should be held accountable for their sin, but at the same time, you can't entirely remove Satan from the equation of evil and the things that happen in the world. That's what Satan wants. He wants the church to essentially ignore him, ignore his existence, and be lulled into the spiritual slumber so that we would be unprepared 
when he actually does attack. And, uh, you know, it's like that famous line in The Usual Suspects where he says the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. And I think what Satan would want of the church is to completely forget that he is actually a threat to the church. Now, Revelation 12 not only tells us that Satan is real, but uh, it tells us Satan is angry. He's angry. Look at verse 12. But woe to you, O earth and seas, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Uh, according to this passage, there is this great war that uh, took place in heaven. And Satan experiences or suffers this major blow on account of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And because of that major blow, he is upset. He is angry. He is going to do whatever he can to basically take the church down because he knows that his time is short. Satan poses a threat because he knows that he lost and therefore he feels probably he doesn't have much to lose. You know, uh, it, is, uh, it is a playoff season for the NBA, and I think baseball has started, and, uh, you know, all these sports. If you, if you watch sports games between two rivals, and if it's an intense rivalry, uh, sometimes the game gets a little bit chippy, right? You know, the most dangerous time for the winning team is probably going to be the, the closing minutes of the game where the game is sealed, you know who's going to win, and the losing team doesn't really have anything to lose. And so uh, they might, you know, they might do something like in football, they might go at the other guy's knees or do something uh, really dirty like that to hurt the winning team. Uh, I heard during the Gulf War, uh, Saddam Hussein, uh, when he knew he was going to lose, he, he did a couple nasty things in terms of... Uh, he ordered his troops and he said, you keep fighting until you're killed or captured. He set fire to the oil wells in Kuwait and things like that. Uh, I think it's a little bit like that. Satan, he is thrown down. He knows he is going to lose. And his response, because he knows his time is short, is to rage, rage against the people of God. If we want to take Satan seriously, uh, it would probably be wise to think about the areas that Satan would want to exploit of us. Uh, you know, I've said this before, but even in the world, businesses will sometimes do SWOT analysis, right? Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats because they want to know where are we vulnerable. Uh, sports teams will oftentimes self-scout to see where are they vulnerable. I think there's a lot of wisdom for the church to maybe do that as well or for us to do it personally and say, if Satan is real and if he wants to attack us and if he wants to bring us down, where are we vulnerable? What would he exploit? If I were Satan... I think one of the first areas that I would exploit when it comes to the people of God is the area of fear. What better thing to attack? What better thing to exploit than a powerful force such as our fears? And therefore, uh, we should be sober-minded. We should be vigilant about our fears, overcoming our fears, so that we don't allow Satan to exploit our fears in order to ultimately achieve what he wants. So on the one hand, Satan's a threat. On the other hand, he's been defeated, and therefore his time is short. We are living in the age of the final minutes of the game, and we know, the Christian church knows that we are going to win because Christ was victorious. Next week is Easter Sunday. That's what Easter Sunday is about. We are going to celebrate the victory of Christ through his resurrection. The winning team simply has to endure the final attacks of the losing team, right? The winning nation in a war simply has to endure and wait for the war to be over and wait for the losing nation to run out of time and to run out of resources. Believers, church, we just simply have to endure and persevere until 
Satan's work is completely vanquished. And what that means is not giving in to fear, even the fear of death. Uh, the churches in Asia Minor, they were persecuted. Persecuted believers in the early church were often arrested and they were often martyred for their faith, just as believers in other parts of the world are today. But they didn't give in to fear because as it says in verse 11, they loved not their lives even unto death. They had courage. You know, the use of the word love, something to note. <clears throat> when it says they loved not their lives, I don't think it means, oh, you know, we want to die. Um, that's a little bit foolish. But I think what it means is they actually had a higher love that drove them, a higher love that governed them. Uh, and the ex outward expression of the higher love actually tells us a little bit about something about how Satan attacks the church. Uh, it's so interesting. If you read the rest of the book of Revelation, there are these two figures that are used for Satan's purposes. You have the beast and you have the prostitute. The beast uses power and authority of kings in order to persecute and oppress the people of God. The prostitute, on the other hand, uses seduction and makes believers compromise in their love for God by succumbing to the desires of their flesh. I think we can say Satan attacks the church in a similar way, either through external oppression, as in the case of persecution, or maybe through seduction and making us desire the things in this world more than him. Uh, I think what's really interesting is you actually see similar themes in literature as well. Uh, I haven't read these books, if I'm going to be honest, but uh, I have an idea of what they're about. I think I read the Spark Notes when I was in high school. Uh, you know, George Orwell's 1984, uh, he envisioned a future where, what, Big Brother was going to destroy us, overtake us by external opposition. Aldous Huxley uh, is on the other side of it in A Brave New World, and he envisioned a future where people would actually come to love the very thing that, that oppresses them, right? <laughs> Fear... I think probably touches upon both. Outward oppression, I think, is going to make people afraid of their own liberties and their own lives. Internal loves will make people afraid of losing the very thing they treasure. I think Satan uses both tactics to attack the church. And I think it's something that we have to be aware of and vigilant of and not allow Satan to exploit our fears. The second thing we learn in this passage, the second character, I should say, is uh, we have the church. The church is in this passage. Now, uh, we learn a few things here. First, the church is going to be spiritually attacked for a period of time, and we are living in that period. And mm, this is going to take some explanation and a little bit of history, uh, so don't tune out. Uh, but if you like Bible study, you might enjoy this. You know, the church is represented by the woman in this passage, and I think what can be a little bit confusing about the book of Revelation is that it doesn't necessarily read in like a linear way. It, it reads more like a, a, a cyclical way. So it's not like giving you the beginning, the middle, the end, but a lot of times the vision is just kind of repeating the same event over <laughs> and over and over again. And that's where you had the seven seals and the seven trumpets, all um, talking about the same event of the final judgment. I think the same thing is happening here. The six, first six verses of, uh, are a vision uh, of one scene, and the following section, I think, is basically a repetition of that, that same reality. So when it says, the woman fled into the wilderness, in verse 6, 
And then it says, the woman was given two wings so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness in verse 14. It's not that the woman is going to the wilderness twice, but again, it's uh, recapitulating right, the same event, and it's talking about the same things. One of the ways that you can tell is actually by the use of numbers. So in verse 6, it says, she would be nourished in the wilderness for 1,260 days. And in verse 14, it says, she would be nourished for a time and times and half a time. That's another way of saying three and a half years. A time is one year, times is two years, so you add two years, and then half a year, that's three and a half years. If you do the math based on 30 days in a month, do you know how many days uh, are in three and a half years? You guessed it, 1,260 days. So basically, these numbers are talking about the same event of the church being in the wilderness. Now, what does that actually mean? What do these numbers mean? Uh, th that phrase time, times, and half a time, uh, this is not the first time it comes up, but this is a phrase that you see in the book of Daniel in one of the visions and prophecies of Daniel. And it was supposed to describe a time of great tribulation for the people of Israel. Now, some people think that Daniel's prophecy was uh, initially fulfilled by uh, during the time of this guy's reign named Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, he oppressed the Jewish people. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with who that is, but if you have any Jewish friends, who celebrate Hanukkah, maybe ask them, what, what is Hanukkah about? Why do you celebrate Hanukkah? And maybe they'll know, <laughs> maybe they'll tell you the story of Antiochus Epiphanes. You know, it's basically a holiday that is meant to remember the rededication of the temple after the Maccabean Jews regained control of Jerusalem from Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, if you are a Jewish person today, I imagine uh, not only would you know this story, but I imagine this would be a really proud moment for your people. You know, interestingly enough, this, uh, this revolt or rebellion against Antiochus Epiphanes to take back the temple, it was the first time in history, uh, I believe, that guerrilla tactics were employed in warfare. And so I heard at West Point, they actually teach and talk about what happened during this fight and during this war because um, of the use of guerrilla warfare. But anyway, the period that Antiochus Epiphanes' oppression lasted was from... 167 BC to 164 BC, or according to Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, it lasted three and a half years. Whoa, right? Now, when readers saw these numbers, they probably thought about Daniel's initial prophecy and its subsequent fulfillment, and therefore they were probably able to see that these numbers in these visions were saying something about the church, and it was this that the church will face a period of tribulation where they will be attacked, but that won't last forever. There's a second point here, too, that we have to consider. The woman flees to the wilderness, and she has a place prepared by God, and she will be nourished during those 1,260 days. Uh, again, the woman is given wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she is to be nourished. What is that a picture of? That's a picture of protection, right? Even though the church will be attacked by Satan, God will protect the church in the wilderness. God will strengthen the church in the wilderness. God will provide for the church in the wilderness during this spiritual season of attack. I think one of the reasons why that's important to remember is because I think you know, most, most churches probably struggle or face some kind of opposition. Um, no matter where you are, here in the West, 
And um, you know, the narrative here, when I talk to like a lot of uh, like you know pastor friends in different places, the narrative here is like, oh, Christianity's on the decline, churches are shrinking, all that kind of stuff. And you know, the temptation is automatically to start thinking about, well, uh, how can we devise better strategies? Uh, how can we um <coughs> analyze what's going on sociologically uh, in order to make sure that we reverse course? And you know, as a pastor, I've been to enough gatherings and conferences, meetings where I've been given like these, you know, best practices and these uh, church assessments and strategies for implementing what they call movement dynamics. And uh, you know. I don't think those are bad things and there's some wisdom in that, but the first thing we ought to be doing in waging war in the spiritual battle is to use spiritual weapons, right? To focus on things like prayer and repentance and fasting and worship. If we are ever struggling in our mission or if sin weighs us down or if things aren't going well in terms of our lives or ministry, we should probably double down on things like prayer, fasting, and worship. That's part of the reason I gave a whole series on prayer in the fall, so um, I'll just leave it at that. The last thing, finally. <coughs> uh, we learn about Jesus in this passage. Jesus here is represented by this male child who's going to rule the nations with an, a rod of iron. And uh, that's a description that you find coming from Psalm 2 about the Messiah. And the scene, is, the scene is a little bit disturbing because you have this dragon standing before the woman who is about to give birth. And if you've ever been in the birth room, uh, you don't want anybody to be there except for the doctor. But you have this dragon standing there before the woman who's about to give birth so that when she bears this child, he might devour it. And it's really a grotesque vision, uh, the picture of what happened in Jesus' earthly ministry. Satan wants to destroy Jesus. Satan would try to kill Jesus from birth. If you remember the story, Herod had all male children in Bethlehem under two, two and under, killed. And that's why Jesus and uh, Joseph and Mary took Jesus and they fled to Egypt for a period of time. Then Satan tries to tempt Jesus in the wilderness and says, and Jesus ultimately says to him, be gone, Satan. And finally, it looks like Satan appears to succeed when Jesus is abandoned, mocked, scorned, indicted, convicted, and crucified on the cross and he seems defeated but what we're going to celebrate next Sunday in his resurrection he is snatched from the power of death and deals this final blow to Satan so you see on the one hand Jesus is the mighty king he rules all nations with a rod of iron on the other hand he is the mighty king who became weak who lost who died upon a cross. You see, that's the irony and the paradox of the gospel. Only Jesus would be the mighty king who surrenders his might. Only Jesus would be the glorious king who would lower himself to serve those under his rule. Only Jesus would be the innocent king who would become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's actually a good message to give today because today's Palm Sunday. Uh, this is a day when Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a humble donkey instead of a majestic steed. One of the obstacles, I think, to understanding and embracing the Christian faith on an existential level, not an intellectual level, I think one of the obstacles is coming to terms with weakness. You see, even if you understand the gospel message, sometimes the way we act and behave, it, it can really <coughs> reveal that we don't truly get it, at least on an existential level, 
because we oftentimes resort to standing upon our own strength, right? We tend to hide our weakness. We tend to highlight our strengths. And where does that come from? Fear and insecurities. If we come from maybe a broken family, if we have certain character flaws, if we have less money, if we aren't as smart as other people, if we uh, have a job that maybe we consider to be not that important, if we have a small church, if we don't have a certain body type, or whatever else the world might define as weak, we will try to hide our weakness because it makes us feel insecure and small. But you know what? If you want to get the gospel on a deeper level, you have to come to terms with your weakness if you want to share in Jesus' victory and strength. That's how Jesus ultimately demonstrates power. That's how Jesus was victorious. It was through a weak cross. You know, how do we do that? How do we embrace weakness? That's not an easy thing to do in order to experience strength. Uh, the passage tells us, you know, in John's vision, he hears a voice in heaven that says, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers, has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. Uh, do you know why we don't come to terms with our weakness? Because Satan's actively accusing us. He is saying, You are unworthy. Uh, how do we resist his accusations? Well, answers in verse 11. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. The way we overcome Satan's accusations, the way we don't live life from a place of fear and insecurity, the way we can really stand up and fight against the principalities uh, of the air, as uh, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, we rest and rely upon the shed blood of the Lamb to be our defense to be our righteousness, to be our very glory. We don't stand condemned on account of our sin, although God does have every right to condemn us, but we stand as a people who are forgiven, who have been set free, who have been delivered on account of the blood of the Lamb. And that is where you find strength, even when you're weak. In fact, weakness is a presupposition to be able to come and to receive and to accept the power of the blood of the Lamb. That's when you'll find life, even in the face of death. That's when you find fullness, even when you feel empty. That's when you find victory, even in loss. And that's the way of the cross. That's the way of the Lamb of God. And that's what Jesus ultimately did and accomplished. Now, uh, let me end it here, but I, I know I didn't say too much about fear directly but I do hope you can see maybe some of the implications that this passage has to say about our fears. Uh, and yeah, it's okay to think about fear and anxiety from a biological, psychological, sociological level. Uh, I'm not saying don't think about it in those categories, but think about it on a spiritual level as well in view of this heavenly war, in view of the fact that Satan is a real threat, that Satan wants to exploit our fears, and Satan wants to lead us down this windy road to death. He might do it oppressively with external powers. He might do it by appealing to the desires of our hearts. But either way, we have to fix our eyes upon Jesus and stand upon the blood and the victory and the strength of the Lamb who will one day when he returns vanquish Satan once and for all. Let's pray together.